Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Quarter. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 80. So tonight, full house. We got everybody back from their respective conferences and vacations and things. So Argo, you were the only one at a iOS-related conference. Uh, what was that one? Yep. Uh, so I went to release notes, uh, for the second year. It's kind of a business focused iOS and, and Mac kind of Apple conference. And it was pretty good again. I don't know if there's like a specific talk that stood out. Um, but there's a couple themes that were kind of prevalent throughout all the talks. One of them that was, it's hard to, to be a Indian app store, which shouldn't be a surprise to anyone at this point, but. There's lots of talks about how to kind of work your way through that. Uh, another one that I thought was kind of interesting is just kind of uh, that as developers, and this probably shouldn't come as a surprise either, our uh, communication is often not very good. So it's something that you need to work on, whether that's in communicating with business partners or customers, customer support. So there's lots of good good suggestions on how to do that. Lots of talk about writing seemed interesting to me. and then. Uh, Came up in a couple talks, but if you have a business, there's kind of like two or three people who you should always kind of have an accountant, a lawyer, and, and potentially like someone who has a, uh, who gets you insurance for all the crazy things that can go wrong. I haven't really gotten any insurance for my business. So I, I know you've, you've kind of had to deal with that, Alex, right? Just yeah. getting insurance. Sounds like you're ahead of the game compared to me on that front. <laughs> yeah. But we're also a consulting business. So. Some of a lot of our clients, especially the bigger clients, expect a decent amount of insurance coverage for things like errors and emissions, just kind of a standard business practice. You know, most freelancers get around getting putting that in place. But, you know, as we work on bigger projects with bigger clients, it's it's a bit of an expectation. And I think the big companies deal with freelancers with with the insurance. They kind of deal with that by having a third party as a clearinghouse for all the freelance or independent developers. So they don't manage them directly. It's, it's this, an, a staffing firm or somebody who manages all the various third parties for them, but it's, it's not cheap. And, uh, it was actually kind of difficult to find a provider to give us coverage. A lot of them would do like standard, like accident and, you know, insure our hardware and, and, you know, furniture and things like that, but actually getting the, the errors and emissions type of insurance, it was a uh, hard to find companies that provided that at a, at a decent price. Yeah. It turns out they even have like uh insurance for consumer data, accidental disclosure. Yeah. Data loss, data breach. Yeah. So that seems like something that depending on what kind of business you're in could be a definitely a good thing to get if you're, you're making apps yourself. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's. You know, I think you can get a wide range of, of coverage, but usually you're looking in the millions of dollars worth of coverage for that type of things. And, and there's like a big umbrella of categories that you can have covered. And I'm sure the plans differ by company. Yeah. So one other going back to the communication I mentioned before, uh, one of the biggest takeaways I had was when you're doing customer support, you get some type of message from a user saying thanks for the feedback is apparently not a thing that users like to hear. The, the person who was giving that talk was uh, Sarah Hatter, and she has a company that does support-type stuff and helps train people to, to do support better. But she likened it to, you know, feedback uh, on a microphone. And people don't like to uh, be told that 
that loud, annoying, scratchy sound when your microphone's too close to the speaker is the thing that they've just given you. And if you try to do your own support, just try to avoid that phrase. Hmm. Yeah, I can't can't imagine that being one that would be weird to respond with. Well, they yeah, so they did this. They were hired by some company um, like an airline and, you know, airlines are notorious for horrible customer support. And they basically said, all right, you've got no budget. You're not allowed to make any um, organizational changes, but we want you to improve things. And I guess just having them change the language they use and like their how they talk to people on Twitter and stuff like that increase their satisfaction rate from like 34% to like 86%, which seems That's seems pretty good for yeah, just just with some like language tweaks. So, she has a book and I'm going to have to check that out and maybe see if I can apply some of some more of the examples that they have in the book to to our support. Yeah, I think probably a big part of it is making it sound like it's not a form letter response. Yeah, it's more like you want to sound like a human, not like a robot. Like that form letter response is almost as bad as no response. Yeah. Because you assume it, it has the same result, like it's gone into the trash can and nobody's going to mm-hmm. look at it. Yeah, like if someone asks you to, for a new feature and you don't really intend on adding that new feature, you can say, unfortunately, uh, we don't have any plans to add this feature or thanks for your feedback or whatever. And instead you can be like, oh, that sounds like a really great idea. We're going to look into that in, in our future releases or something <laughs> like that, you know? Even yeah. if you're not going to do anything with it at all, <laughs> that sounds a lot better to a user. Yeah, we could feature requests for one of our apps quite a bit. And quite often it's the same feature request. So we know it's an important one. But the one thing I tried to avoid is giving any expectation of when that feature is going to be available. Tell them it's it's in a roadmap. It's it's coming up. But you know, it, it, it can be dangerous to also commit to, oh, it's in the next release or it's... It's going to be in the next uh, next month because you never know what's going to happen. Apple could release something yeah. new and you've got to change your plans. You never know. Yeah, that's definitely the Apple strategy to, to feature requests is kind of radio silence until you're ready to announce it or show it in a beta. Seems like there's some indie developers who are saying that they they'll pre-announce features just to kind of the same way. Like if you're trying to lose weight, you'll you'll tell your friends that you're trying to lose weight. So they try to support you and call you out on stuff that they they announce features ahead of time so that people kind of by peer pressure make them actually finish the feature. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm actually opposite that way. If I'm trying to lose weight, I don't want anybody to know because no? then, yeah, I just want to kind of do it under the covers slide by just so that I don't know. I don't know why I do that, but it seems like if somebody knows that I'm trying to lose weight, all of a sudden I lose my motivation to do it. Interesting. Yeah, definitely backwards. I'm sure. So had some interesting news this week. So uh, the Omni group had a pretty good post this week about how they're changing the way that they're going to price their apps and deal with upgrades and free trials. And not much in the article is really new. I mean, it really comes down to them using in-app purchases in order to enable the the pro or uh, upgrades. Historically, they've always provided their apps through the Mac or iOS app store, but they've also sold through the website uh, and they haven't been able to easily do upgrade pricing. And they're definitely have typically been an upfront one-time price. And then occasionally they'll release a new version of the app as a separate SKU. So um, to upgrade, you have to buy the new app. 
but they can't easily do upgrade pricing as I think we're all aware of the limitations of the app store. Uh, so their new strategy is to use the in-app purchases. The, the app will be free and work in many cases like a, a, a viewer. So you can view documents created with that, but you can't do any, any of the features that modify a document will be disabled until you enable the, the the pro version. And with this, they can detect if you had a previous version installed and give you the upgrade pricing to enable those new features. And I don't know if that means they're still going to release a new SKU every time they have require you to upgrade, or if somehow they're going to disable the, the new features until you pay the in-app purchase to upgrade to the new features. But I suspect it'll be a new SKU. It looks like they do have the upgrade pricing, though. Uh, just kind of built in with the in-app purchase stuff. You yes. can check for previous versions and all that stuff. So, I mean, it's kind of weird because all the Mac developers complained and they were complaining that release notes about this too, is that I'd like to be able to do upgrade pricing. You know, I'd like to do this and that. And it looks, I mean, it sure looks like you can do it. I mean. <laughs> so I'm assuming they're not giving you the full functionality of the app for a little bit of time than taking it away. Because no, they are. They are. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I thought that wasn't allowed either, but it sounds like they got it to work. Yeah, I can't remember if it was, um, I think the article talked about it being kind of a free in-app purchase. Huh. So they give you a free in-app purchase first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it looks like you, you buy the app and it's the viewer, like Alex was saying, and then you can do an in-app purchase that costs $0 to start a free trial. I guess that's a one-time thing. Like a subscription or I guess I would, oh no, I guess that would be a, a non-consumable. Well, I think that they can look at the receipt and see when you purchase. So another aspect of the upgrade pricing is if you purchase the previous version within some time frame, like let's say 30 days, they will give you a free upgrade to the newest version. So they've dealt with that problem as well. What they had done previously was take their apps off the store temporarily until the new version came out, just so they didn't have people buying it a week or a couple weeks before the new version comes out. And then they didn't have any way to upgrade for free. Right. That's, that's always a rough thing when you buy something like that. And then the new version comes out and there's no way for you to get that new version without. Yeah. And you know, Omni groups been in the app store pretty much from day one and it was always interesting that they committed to giving you money back if you didn't like the product. There is a way to get refunds through the app store, but even before that was well understood, they they were willing to back their products. So now that now you can do trials and they can avoid having to do refunds as often. But there a lot of their products are forty dollars and up, some well over a hundred. Yeah, they're definitely uh not your typical app store price. Yeah, no, they're definitely in that pro productivity space. Yeah. Well, they're the Mac, typical Mac app store price for a quality app. For quality app. That's that's one of the reasons why Mac developers do better, it seems like. And I think OmniGraphle can get, you know, if you go with the pro version, I don't know what it lists at, but it's well over $100, I think. It's, uh, it's, it's better than Vizio, and there really aren't a whole lot of products that compare with Graphle, so it's probably worth their price. Yeah. Another uh, interesting development this week, we have a little bit of a Parse and Firebase competitor, I guess you could say, that uh, the company that puts out all the iOS development-related videos and also does some database stuff on the side, uh, Realm, they released their new thing called Realm Mobile Platform. And it's, I guess it's just kind of a Realm database in the cloud, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And syncing was always something that they didn't 
really have built in to Realm uh, for the client database. So this is kind of a long-awaited feature to be able to sync with Realm without having to build your own. And I, I think you're right. In a lot of ways, it's like Firebase, but they have some. They have a nice demo video and a demo app showing using two people using a, a whiteboard app and editing the same drawing at the same time. Yeah, it's a pretty cool, cool uh, demo. It seems like the whiteboard app seems to handle connections or lack of connections better than FaceTime does. <laughs> it's kind of impressive. Along with the Realm mobile platform, they also open source the Realm core database engine, which previously was closed source and I think had to be licensed commercially. I've never really understood their business model prior to this. Like, I don't know who, who pays for it. And, you know, they've got some really sharp developers there. And I think it's a decent sized company. And I believe they're based in San Francisco and they do a lot of great things. I just never understood how they made money. And even with the Realm mobile platform, there's the developer tier, which is free and will always be free. And then there's an enterprise tier, which is, uh, I think it's a uh, contact us to find out how much. Hmm. Yeah. The enterprise tier, which includes some extra features. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just a, a size. It's yeah more features. So, okay. There's always been the client libraries that were basically open source. And now the core database engine is now open source as well. Is that yeah. what they said? Okay. That's interesting. I've uh, just in passing been looking at a couple other um, database slash key value stores that aren't based on something like SQLite and seeing if they would port well to mobile. And uh, I like this now because I was always afraid that, well, if Realm was going to go away or if they needed to start funding themselves better, that they might take away this free tier for their database engine. And now it, with it being open source, it's available for anybody. And if you really had to, if Realm disappeared off the face of the earth tomorrow, the community could still pick up where they left off with this. So that's great. Yeah. That, well, that's the, the database engine. Now with the Realm mobile platform, their object server, uh, because this is a object database. So it's the server side's also an object database. I don't believe that is open source or has any current plans to be open source. So you do have the same potential issue of, of a parse style uh, shutdown where true that back end as a service goes away, which they do every few years. You've got, you know, you've got the same issue with Firebase, you know, even though it's backed by Google, Google could lose interest, right? They might decide that self-driving cars are where it's at. Forget this mobile thing. I mean, Facebook is a pretty big company and they, they found other interests. So yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. see either of these going away. Yeah, there's there's no safe bet short of maybe building your own, but you've got to put the time and money into to doing that. Right. And Which thinking it looks was... like, you know, at least the demos of the the Realm syncing solution seem to to work really well and deal with uh connectivity issues and conflicts. You know, those are things that are not easily done and probably why it's taken them so long to add syncing. It looked like they did a pretty good job of it so far. I'm sure there's some edge cases that, that are more challenging, but um, the demos anyway look good. Yeah, I'll need to check out the demos later. There's a lot on my plate right now for things I want to check out. <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, John Sundell, who's a iOS developer at Spotify. He's been giving these talks on the... Uh, Spotify app and how it's architected. And he's been doing this now for several months and kind of teasing us because it, 
the stuff that he shows off and talks about is really cool looking. And if you think, oh, I'd love to have this in my app. And people always ask him in the Q&A part, is this open source or is it going to be open source? And his answer was always, it's coming, it's coming. And well, actually this week it's here. I would highly recommend people check out some of his uh, talks online. We'll have a I have some links to them in the show notes, but Spotify finally released this framework, this open source framework uh, that, that he's been talking about for so long. And it's called Hub Framework. Basically, it's it's kind of a MVVM style thing, but the view models are actually coming from the server and everything coming from the server is saying, okay, display this thing this way or this thing that way. If they want to experiment with their UI, they can have these different components that they would just send down the, the configuration information for. And so they can easily switch between like a card-based layout, a carousel, add a table view inside there, and all kinds of things just by changing up the JSON that they send down from the server, which means based per on a per-user basis, they can actually uh, experiment with their UI and do A-B testing and things like that. It was something I was really excited about and really hoping that they would finally, they would actually open source or I would take enough time to write my own, but they saved me the trouble this week. I don't know if you guys have looked at any of those videos or, or seen this hub framework yet. I saw a video probably over a year ago now at a, I think it was a conference in maybe Russia or something. It was a really cool demo. I've looked a little bit at that getting started guide and, and some of the code kind of reminds me of Facebook's component kit but it does a lot more. Yeah. yeah, everything is done up in these components. And then these components, they know how big something is on the screen. And then they have a overall view controller that lays everything out. It's very good for a content-oriented app. I, mean, I wouldn't try to put together a to-do list app or something like that with this. If you've got content to display, this would be something to, to look into. It is written in Objective-C. They've taken the time to add all the nullability and other type annotations and things like that. So it works really well with Swift. Sounds cool. I'll have to, actually, I'll let you try it out. And if you still think it's good, then maybe I'll look into it. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm still sold on it in a couple yeah. weeks. Yep. Yeah. It might just be the new shiny, but we'll see. Yeah. I'm sure it has its place and has its places where it shouldn't be used. Those yep. will be readily apparent after a while. So Argo, if I go and search for one of your apps, am I going to see somebody else's ads there now? Uh, yeah, you probably will. <laughs> yeah, the search ad apocalypse is nigh. So I was actually at release notes uh, last week. And as I'm walking to dinner, as a side note, that's a cool thing they do at release notes. They kind of set everybody up in, in dinner groups so you can meet the people at the conference. And you, you do a real good job of meeting people. But anyways, uh, he said, hey, search ads are live. So what should we do? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the... They're kind of taking a Google AdWords approach and they basically said, hey, you have an app on the App Store. Here's $100. You can use a free money for search ads. So I imagine we're going to see a lot of search ads live in the App Store just because of that. And maybe it'll peter off a little bit uh, depending on how competitive whatever categories and search keywords for your app are. But we have a lot more. Back in the beta, you basically opt in to search ads and they would just show up based on some kind of magic thing that happened. <laughs> now you can say, oh, I want to just target this keyword or I want to target people 
or I don't want to target this keyword, even though it's one of the keywords in my app. So you've got a lot more fine grained controls. And I guess I can report back uh, in the coming weeks, uh, seeing how the performance of that goes. If it's going to make me spend a whole whole bunch more money or maybe just a little bit more money. We'll have to see. <laughs> so does that $100 buy you something or is it more like a 50% off coupon or something? No, that's $100, $100 worth of. Okay. Have you have you bought any ads yet? Um yeah, we we've, we've got it all set up. So it's all just kind of seeing how what the performance is. And like I said, I feel like it's going to kind of be in this weird performance mode when there's this sudden infusion of, hey, anyone who wins $100, go at it. So I'm guessing things will change in a couple weeks. Right. Maybe you should wait to spend your $100 until everybody else has spent theirs and then wasted all their money. Or we're going to be spending way more than $100. So <laughs> if it's anything like Facebook ads, it's $100 is next next to nothing. Like you don't. Yeah, it won't get you very far. Yeah. At least that's my hunch. We'll see. Okay. So I guess the the question that people have been talking about again is, so this is good for indie developers. How? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one more expense, right? Yeah, there is. I guess there is one one person I talked to uh, at release notes, uh, and I think he may have tweeted about this too. Curtis Herbert, he makes the slopes app who is kind of excited to, to see if this can get him more users. So I, there are people who are optimistic about it, but I, for the most part, I think if you're making a new app and you don't have some, you know, venture back funding or some money stored away somewhere, it's going to kind of make it even harder to, to break in than it was before. And I think the way they worded it is the the keywords are basically going to go to the highest bidders, which usually means it's the, the big companies and the, the VC funded companies that are going to get the most value out of it. Right. Yep. But, you know, kind of going back to the Facebook ads, this is probably going to be more relevant because it's going to be at the time of people searching. Uh, so it, in terms of effectiveness, it's probably going to be higher because it's the right right time and place versus if you're in the middle of your news feed or something on Facebook or some other app at, or you know getting ready to play a new new level of a game, you're probably not going to be, oh, you know what? I'm going to quit what I'm doing right now and go get this app. Kind of depends you know, how effective it will be or how important it will be for depending on what kind of app you have. Uh, because if you're just making some random game that people aren't searching for in the first place, uh, it's probably not going to make much of a difference, uh, which I guess was another thing I heard was, uh, I don't think anything's really going to change about that. It'll probably be nothing. Like if you're making a photo app, unless people are searching for your specific photo app, they're not going to see any more value from this or if you're making a MOBA or something like that some some game odds are people aren't searching for MOBA they're just kind of trolling the the chart so it's probably really only going to affect apps that people are already searching for so yeah I guess we'll we'll see how that plays out this uh article I guess it made its way out on iOS Dev Weekly and a few other channels and I'll tell you there were several people that sent this link to me about the guy who uh why he's not a React Native developer. That was quite a long read. It's probably because they know about your intense love for JavaScript, Sam. Yeah, that must be it. <laughs> <laughs> I think all the other guys had about the same amount of love for it, too. If you ever get a chance, um, there's a, a lightning talk that's online by uh, Gary Bernhardt. I think it's called WAT, W-A-T. That is it, yep. He shows a whole bunch of WAT moments, like where you just say, what, about JavaScript, things like, I don't know, you could add undefined and null or something together and it becomes an object, or I don't remember all the weird things, but 
but if you do it the reverse, you get something different. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a fun video to watch. We should put a link to it in the show notes if it's still out there. I'm sure it is. I know he tries to kind of keep all the stuff off of YouTube and stuff. Maybe he has it on his website. I think that's where it was that I saw it. Yeah, which was destroy all software, I believe. Yep. So. Yeah, this guy basically reiterated a lot of that stuff about JavaScript being a poor platform and React Native kind of suffering from that. And React Native is still kind of the the new uh, favorite kid on the block for cross-platform development. You know, that's probably the one we hear about more often than anything else. Uh, But it's still very much in this experimental, let's try it out. We're not ready to commit to it phase. I'm sure there's plenty of people who've shipped production apps on it. But we've also had a few companies we've talked to that started down the path and had to revert for one reason or another. Uh, Some of those reasons are highlighted in this document. But, you know, it's not a 1.0 release and you get breaking changes all the time and they do updates every two weeks. You might be working, you might have everything working fine this week and then next week there's an update and you pull down the latest source and everything breaks. Not everything, but... Yeah, and if you don't want to deal with breaking changes, you just use Swift, right? Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Swift only breaks once a year. Yeah, and there's a micro tool (laughs) and, you know, this article kind of, in a lot of ways, I think this guy is very much a a pro type safe language guy and, um, you know, Swift is type safe. So the compiler can catch a lot of those issues for you uh, where if it's JavaScript or or something dynamic like that, did you... Objective-C. Yeah, you you wouldn't get the compiler can't really figure out what you're doing. So it may it may still compile, but not work. Yeah, I would say like two thirds of the article is probably complaints about JavaScript. He does say some good things about React Native and and there are some compelling aspects of it. I think their UI model and layout model is interesting. And to some degree, it's kind of like that hub framework where it's very component oriented. You know, this is a platform. It's not a framework. It's not a, it's not a library. So pretty much everything you do is on this platform. And if you decide later you don't like it or you have to move, it's an expensive decision. You're not going to switch it out like you would switch out a networking library or a, say, an image downloading library or something like that. But yeah. you can blend it with your with your existing apps, and that's what the guys at Artsy are doing. It seems yeah. interesting because they're they're going all in, they're loving it, they're getting away from Swift and everything else in place of and replacing it with React Native. Yeah, and I I don't think Artsy is necessarily doing that for every application, but there are at least there's at least one that. They've gone down this path and have been happy with that decision. And, you know, there's been others that have gone down this path that, that weren't happy for one reason or another. Well, there is this hype cycle thing where people will get on board and they will love something a lot. They'll be really excited about it. And then at some point they're going to hit this like low point. They call it like a little trough where... The trough of disillusionment. Yes. <laughs> something like that. The trough of disillusionment. Yeah. And that's where people go, oh, this is so terrible. We, we just, we're having all these problems with this thing. Wish we could go back to whatever we came from. And, and then eventually it kind of levels out where you learn the warts and you either learn where it's good or bad. And, and that kind of gets into another point that's made in the article of, you know, it's not clear what Facebook's commitment is. It's not clear what their long-term roadmap is for the product or the platform. I mean, it is open source, but I don't, I don't know how many committers there are. Or I think it's open source. I guess I don't know that for sure. Um, well, isn't the stated goal to replace all other development? 
<laughs> like, I think one of the first parts of the article is like uh, a, a message to the like a mailing group or something like that, where it's like, so is the goal to replace Swift and Coco and all that stuff? And it was the answer was, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Just a short, real short answer. Yeah. But, you know, as far as I know, this hasn't touched the any of the main applications at Facebook. There's some like side applications that are using it. And, you know, the, the article talks about how there there was a promise back, you know, over a year ago, I think they'll publish a roadmap and it still hasn't been published yet. Right. So, my, my other concern is that JavaScript frameworks are popular for six months to a year and then people move on. We're hitting that point where something is about to replace React as the popular framework. Yeah, it was Angular. Angular's kind of been supplanted by React. And even before Angular, I think it might have been, oh, help me out, guys. Are you talking like uh, JavaScript frameworks? Backbone. Like, yeah. Backbone. Well, like, and, you know, in, on the web, Ember, Ember, uh, Ember is pretty popular wild. right now. Yeah, it changes all the time. and Right. It's the kind of the, the flavor of the month. And so eventually something is going to come across, come up where people go, oh, this React thing, yeah, it was cool, but this thing over here is better. So I think with React Native, if, you're, if you've got React JS developers and you want to get into building apps, this probably is a pretty good option. Or you want to build a cross-platform mobile app and you don't necessarily care about the details, you know, this, this probably isn't a bad option for that either, though most of the companies I talk to who've done React Native have only done it for one platform, so they haven't really accomplished the uh, cross-platform benefit yet. It, it was done on a project that my day job, I will have to say, we're afraid to even look at that code anymore. Um, it was actually outsourced, and the, the people that did it were, were good developers, but it seemed like if they, they had to kind of just pin to a certain version of React, and now that code hasn't been touched in a good six months. Yeah, I think if you tried to update it to the latest version, that would be quite an undertaking. Yes. And that kind of brings me to another point in the article of the dependency graph for React Native. <laughs> you mentioned there's over 600 libraries that React Native depends on, and that I like to keep my dependency graph pretty small. 600 is a little beyond my appetite. Well, it makes anything you make small. You can include 30 CocoaPods, and you're still going to be coming well under 600 dependencies. I'm just not not sold on it, even if it wasn't JavaScript. Even if it was just a, a language that compiled into JavaScript, which there are plenty of, I, I would still have trouble with it. I wouldn't mind having a project to work on uh, to to play around with it and be more have more hands-on experience with it. But it's I'm I'm not hearing too many success stories that make me say that yeah this is this is worth taking that hit to learn the platform. You know, for us as a consulting company, it's we wouldn't go with React Native to build faster, at least not on the first one or two project. You know, it would be an investment for future projects. Yeah. So you can scare the pants off the Android developers and say, we're going to start with, with Android as a platform for it, for a test. Yeah. They might all walk out the door and protest before you can tell them it's a joke. <laughs> Sounds like it's still a pretty risky proposition at this point to even yeah. make investments like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's very hard to predict the future, right? Long time ago, assembly developers said that all those C developers were wasting too many clock cycles. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, later on, the C developers said the C++ developers were doing the same thing. And now we have JavaScript, so. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have JavaScript, so I like how you made that last jump. 
<laughs> wasting even more clock cycles. Yeah, React Native is what a couple years in now, and uh, it's, it's over yeah, a year. Actually, it came out around when we started this podcast. Okay, so. so maybe a year and a half, roughly. Yeah, I mean, I know they presented it at the React React JS conference, and there's been at least one more since that that first announcement. Um, right, but they're still on version point three four. That's a big jump for them <laughs> yeah. these days. Because last so, time I looked, it was like point. 15. Uh, it's it's definitely, you know, everybody can interpret version numbers a little bit differently. I mean, CocoaPods was not a 1.0 for a very long time and lots of people were dependent on it and probably complained about it a lot, but it was still better than doing it by doing it manually. Um, I don't know, for a platform, it's probably a little scary not having a 1.0 version for a production app. Well, unless you're going to be in that code base every day and keeping it up to date, I would be afraid to do an app and then put it on the shelf for several months and then come back to yeah. it. Yeah, basically not having the 1.0 release number is basically saying we're not afraid to make breaking changes. In fact, we're, yeah, so we're promising that we probably are going to make breaking changes before that 1.0 version. And it sounds like that happens quite frequently. So it sounds like it's kind of interesting. So for React, I think they think it's more of a, more of a at a steady state, and they're calling React version 15, which I think is a version number you were used to seeing, Sam. But React Native has a different version numbering scheme, and that's the version 0.34 that they're on now. So yeah, it's confusing. So it sounds like they think the React framework as a whole is is steady, although being on version 15 seems like pretty high version number. But well, they. they... They dropped the leading zero because it was like 0 0.14 and they went from that to 15 from what I remember. Maybe that's the point where they decided it was ready for Chrome. I don't know. We'll have to see. I think they decided to go with more of a Chrome versioning. Yeah. Any JavaScript developers, feel free to uh, write in and tell us how dumb we are. <laughs> <laughs> Call us out. Tell us why your language doesn't suck. Man. <laughs> I honestly, I do every every so often do try to pick up that language and, and try it out again and, and love it. That's just one of those things I, I never succeed at. Compared to some of the other options out there, I, I, I definitely like React Native over the, the PhoneGap solution. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I think it's a better model. I think from like the UI model, I think conceptually, I think it's actually a pretty good model. It's the 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 fact that it's a moving target depends on JavaScript, um, which, you know, for some people, that's that's fine. JavaScript is great. Uh, for other people, it's it's not not the language of choice. So it, it's a barrier for some people. You know, I think those things make React Native a little hard to adopt. The concepts, I think, are good. And I think, you know, if they can influence, you know, other companies, other other solutions, I, I think that's a good thing. I suppose so. And there are things making its way out of the React framework that are good, like the, the unidirectional data flow idea where your data changes are made in one place and then that flows back down into the UI and there's no like two-way binding trying to go on or anything like that. That's a idea that's made its way out of React into even into the iOS world with projects like ReSwift. You know, those good things are coming out of React. So well, React and, and the JavaScript community in general, it's, you know, there's been a lot of interesting frameworks like Flexbox and, you know, Promises as well, you know, things that have slowly made their way into both Android and iOS development that came from that community. So there's a lot of smart people doing some really cool stuff, but we're not True. doing them in JavaScript on those platforms. We're bringing those concepts and making them available as native libraries. Yeah. There are, there are good things to take away from these things. If we can just leave the, the rest of the cruft behind, that'd be great. 
So with all that said, uh, I think that's about all the time we have this week. You guys want to say where we can find you on the internet? I'm at AJ Robinson on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo. And I'm at Sam Quarter. The podcast is at Shared Inst. If you want to give us some feedback and tell us how you love JavaScript or whatever, join our Slack channel, chat.sharedinstance.com for an invite. See you guys next week. Later. Later.